0: And we're still talking about revolution.
2: Hello and welcome to the Do and Time Show. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. This is Marissa and I'll be taking you through until 5 o'clock this evening. First up on the show, we'll be speaking with Karen Fletcher. And Karen is the Managing Lawyer of Public Interest Law at Fitzroy Legal Service in Melbourne and a long-time advocate for the rights of people in prison. And we'll be speaking with Karen about various issues, one of them being her work with adult prisoners. We may actually touch on the topic of youth and what's happening there, although although next week I will be speaking with Tiffany Overall from Youth Law about that. And I want to speak to Karen about the prison lockdowns And there was quite a lot of information in The Age about that and various other media sources. And I want to speak to her about the lockdown in prisons because of the fact that some guards tested positive for coronavirus, although it might be in the singular, and I'll clarify that with her. But really, the reason why I invited Karen on the show was just to discuss with her some of the issues in regards to prisoners and in the context of the pandemic, and to talk about this this really, really worrying and disturbing health crisis. After, Karen, we'll be speaking with Dr Hannah McGlade. and Dr Hannah is actually a Senior Indigenous Research Fellow at Curtin University in New South Wales. And we'll be speaking with Hannah about um, about state violence, and she'll be sharing with us a number of suicide and a number of cases in regards to state violence with a particular focus on indigenous children. And so we'll be speaking with her shortly about that. So before we go um, speaking to Karen, we'll go into a very, very quick um, quick announcement.
1: Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501 weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's zero four three four one three six five zero one, Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. And you're back with it.
2: The Doing Time show, and we're going to be speaking now with Karen. Hello, Karen. Welcome. Hi. It's lovely
1: to have you. Great to be here. Thank you.
2: Now, Karen, you're from Fitzroy Legal Service, and and I I imagine you would have you would have heard the intro while you were waiting for us to, for me to come.
1: Yes, and I'm from Fitzroy Legal Service. Yep. I've got so, a you on the line. Tell us a little bit about yourself and and some of the work that you do. We have a prison advice service which operates on Fridays from 10 till 4, uh, and prisoners can ring in on that number if they have our phone number on their phone card. Um, so I'll give the number at the beginning and then again at the end, perhaps. It's 9484 uh, 4751. That's staffed on Fridays uh, between 9.30 and 4.30 by lawyers and paralegals, and um We can speak to people in prison and their families and loved ones about prison law issues.
2: That's fantastic. And we do actually have a listenership in prisons for the Do and Time show. So that's really useful that you've given that out. And we'll do that at the end, Karen. That's a good idea. So what do you think about all this, about the health crisis and and what's happening with prisons? I mean, we've done quite a lot of extensive coverage on our show in regards to the pandemic and how there really is such a lack of hygiene in prisons and indeed prisoners are very much excluded from, from all this. Can you talk to us about that?
1: Yeah, look, I think it's true to say that um, prisons are one of the highest risk environments for uh, transmission of COVID-19. They're right up there with cruise ships, um, uh, health facilities, aged care facilities. Uh, All places where there are people who are living in a high density and people who've got compromised health. And international experience has been that once uh, COVID-19 infection gets into a prison, um, usually it's through staff, uh, prison officers or contractors, Uh, it spreads extremely quickly and it has devastating results. And we've seen very high rates of death in prisons in other countries and particularly in the United States where mass incarceration is probably the highest in the world.
2: Absolutely. And so there's been a lockdown of prisons across the state, Karen. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, so the strategy uh, in Victoria where we are, and I would say in other Australian jurisdictions, has been to sort of focus on trying to keep COVID-19 out of the prisons, which, of course, is the first line of defence, um, and there's been, a, I think, arguably a not so much attention on what is going to happen if COVID-19 gets in. And all public health advice is that the only and the most important public health measure if COVID-19 gets into a prison is to reduce the size of the population and get people out. So all public health advice is that we need to be focusing on getting people out um, particularly young people, elderly people, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and people with compromised immune systems because of other illnesses. And there's mechanisms available to do that. Uh, We've got the ability in Victoria for the prison operators to release people 14 days early um, if there's uh, an emergency situation like this, uh, which would have a huge impact because about half of all prisoners serve less than a, a month. Um, most people said very, very short terms in prison. So uh, releasing people 14 days early would have a huge impact. Um, but there's also some laws there that enable people to be released if they are in very poor health and they need to be released for health reasons. Uh, but there hasn't been focus on that decarceration as a public health measure in Australian prisons. As I said, the main focus has been on um, quarantining prisons or prisoners or locking people down when they first come into prisons. Um, and now that there, is, there have been cases of both people on remand and prison staff uh, testing positive for COVID-19, there's now this big emphasis on locking everybody down in the youth detention centres and the prisons. Um, and several prisons have had full lockdowns uh, where people have confined to themselves completely. On one day last week, we had a day where people couldn't even get to court or um, even by video conference for their bail hearing. Um, keeping visitors out, uh, preventing prisoners from having access to things like education, programs, libraries, uh, exercise. Um, So, yeah, I think it's fair to say that it's been a pretty one-sided response to COVID-19 in Australia and uh, our concern is if the numbers are not reduced and even when it does get inside and we think that there is a real risk of that, there's a, there is a real risk that people um, could become very unwell uh, and w- that we'll see deaths inside Victorian prisons.
2: In all honesty, I'm surprised that there haven't been deaths inside prisons so far, unless the numbers haven't been released to us.
1: The, it seems like the situation early in the pandemic was, you know, where, where most of the cases were returned travellers, uh, that there was much less of a risk of it getting inside. But now, you know, every day it seems like we're hearing of another member of prison staff or a remand prisoner being tested positive. And uh, I think it is really just a matter of time before somebody who's, you know, uh, pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic um, works, goes in to do a shift in a prison um, and uh, the virus is, there is also a, there is also an issue that um, prisoners are reporting to us that they're asking to be tested and being refused tests at the moment. So there is a risk that it could spread quickly without the prison authorities even knowing that it is spreading.
2: So, so tests are being refused to prisoners when they ask?
1: Yeah. So one of the um, issues we've had is that there has been mass testing in the community and uh, people in the general community on the outside are able to go down to Northland or wherever and get a test if they wanted to. Um, but uh, prisoners that are asking for tests in the prisons, uh, we're hearing, are, are being refused. Um, the prison authorities say that they are testing people who have got symptoms, uh, but, uh, you know, there's 7,000 people in the prison system, and the last I heard, they had swabbed about 500, so very low rates of testing in the prisons at the moment. I think there is this real reliance on thinking that the 14-day quarantine of people going into prisons is going to be enough to keep the virus out.
2: And that's so untrue. Indeed, our our prison system is very overcrowded and social distancing would be virtually impossible and lockdowns create a really, you know, unstable environment.
1: Yeah, well, lockdowns are extremely dangerous to people's health in other ways, apart from COVID-19. You know, we've heard it said by prison operators that they could lock down the whole whole system for the whole of the pandemic if necessary. And there is no doubt that that will lead to severe mental health problems, um, especially for young people and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but for all people in the prison system. Because, you know, when we talk about a lockdown in prison, it's not like a lockdown... On the outside, um, there's no going out for exercise. There's no, there's nothing to do in the cell. Um, it can be quite dangerous where people are doubled up or tripled up in a cell because of overcrowding, um, being locked in a very small room for a long period of time with other people that you don't necessarily get on with. With a toilet, you know, in a double-double or tripled up cell, the toilet is next to somebody's head, um, the way that uh-huh. the rooms are configured. Uh Yeah, no personal visits. We're getting reports. There's been no personal visits for months in the prisons and so people haven't been seeing their parents or their children or their loved ones, husbands and wives. Um, And the prison system is supposed to be providing mobile phones and iPads and other technology so that people can have video visits. But the reports that we're getting is there's just not enough equipment And there's also problems with the connectivity of the equipment. In some places, the cell walls are so thick that the Wi-Fi can't get through. Um, People are being um, taken to the visits area to do video visits, and that's reducing the number of of, um, visits that they can have. Um, Having difficulty getting in touch with uh, lawyers and other professional visitors. No face-to-face contact with counsellors, psychologists. So that kind of treatment especially when it continues for days and weeks and months is extremely dangerous to people's health.
2: Absolutely. And and why is it that there are early release programs that have been established in the US and the UK and parts of Europe and not in Australia? I wonder whether Australia is is still considered a penal settlement. I mean that's probably a very <laughs> a, a very radical thing to say I suppose but it just seems really, really strange, Karen,
1: that, you know, yeah, look, it's, not, the things, it's not happening. Yeah. One of the things we've noticed is it's, 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 the public health measures, are in, when it relates to prisons, are extremely politicised in Australia. Yeah. Rather than seeing it as a public health measure, there's a real um, willingness, uh, particularly for opposition parties, and here in Victoria, this is certainly the case to make allegations that this is not a public health measure, but it's, you know, a free ticket out of prison um, rather than oh. something that needs to be done because of, of the um, of the pandemic. And the way that the government is responding seems to sort of accept that politicisation by saying, we're you know, we're not going to um, release people early. That's got nothing to do with the pandemic. I think we've really got to try to win this discussion about, this is not, uh, we're not mucking around here, this is actually a deadly virus and these are absolutely essential public health measures to save lives. It's not a political issue, you know, like um, at an election about who's going to be the toughest on crime.
2: That's exactly correct. And, in fact, the only way, really, that the government's organising this in Victoria is that they're saying that new prisoners are being swabbed and placed in 14-day protective quarantine away from the general prison population. Does that not also create an unstable environment and mental health issues too?
1: Yeah, for people coming into prison, I mean, the vast majority of people coming into and going out of prison are there for, you know, um, less serious offences than for a short period of time, and it can be very dangerous to keep people like that Um, who are already traumatised and may be suffering, you know, drug withdrawal or alcohol withdrawal or other kinds of mental health issues in total solitary for 14 days. But the other issue with it is that it's not necessarily effective because the main way that uh, the virus probably gets into prisons in most jurisdictions is actually via staff. There's so many staff, uh, correctional officers and contractors of all sorts cleaners and all sorts of people coming in and out of prisons all the time. And we know that this virus can uh, be, you know, a person can be infectious without having any symptoms. So the biggest risk is actually from staff without symptoms going to work. Um, and as the Premier has been saying and the Chief officer has been saying for the last few days, it's actually workplaces that are the biggest driver of infections at the moment in the pandemic. Um, and prisons are huge workplaces.
2: Uh, and a
1: lot of the staff there are not particularly secure or well-paid. We've we've had a story last week of a prison officer who worked for G4S, the um, private prison operator at Port Phillip Prison, who was moonlighting as hotel quarantine security in April. I think he did eight shifts or something um, in hotel quarantine while he was working in the prison Uh and, you know, that obviously hotel quarantine was a very high-risk environment, work environment. And the prison, private prison operator, G4S, say that they weren't even aware that he was working in that environment. So that's the kind of risk that they're not even aware of. Um, you know, it's really only a matter of time before the infection gets in.
2: Absolutely. I'm very worried about it, to be honest, Karen. And...
1: It, it's really, it's really worrying, so and I, I really feel for families and loved ones who've got people in prison. Um, yes, because it's it's a constant uh, source of anxiety about what's going to happen.
2: Absolutely, and in particular because the loved ones are cut off. Now they're not able to visit the prisoners.
1: Yeah, and also, I mean, uh, prisoners who were allowed to have access to the common areas in their units, were able to use the Arunta phone system to call families and friends. Uh, but when you're locked down, you can't get to the phone system. So the usual daily phone calls that people were making perhaps for their kids or their wife or husband or girlfriend or whatever, um, those calls can't happen when you're in lockdown
2: indeed and and I know you you work with adults, but to, just to quickly touch on this, what about children and you know who who are in prison as well? That would be terrible
1: yeah it is um, it's shocking to think about children and young people being locked down in these conditions, especially with the anxiety around the um, the pandemic as well uh, and not having their usual access to their parents or other carers. Um, this is this is really an emergency situation, and that's why I say it's really important that uh, government doesn't take a politicised attitude towards this and and addresses it as a public health issue that it is.
2: Indeed, and and
1: Karen, what about
2: um, in terms of, of social distancing? In terms of the fact that prisoners do have to be strip searched, don't they? And there are other intrusive factors at play here.
1: Yeah, so I think that prisons, the corrections, are their view seems to be that they can achieve some kind of social distancing through solitary confinement, uh, which, just, as, as we've talked about, has its own risk. And the reason that they can't provide um, good Uh, social distancing apart from that is because the prisons have got so many people in them so the common areas and the uh, uh, equipment and facilities in the common areas um, are used by so many people at once that makes social distancing very difficult and that's why um, reducing the size of the prison population and taking out anybody who doesn't need to be there, bailing everybody who can be bailed, paroling everybody who can be paroled, uh, giving um, health leave to people who need it uh, giving 14 days early release to prisoners nearing the end of their sentence. That's why those things need to be put in place because with that many people in a confined space, um, and in a lot of prisons you can't open the windows so you don't get any, um, uh, you know, through air um, and you can't get out into exercise yards and those sorts of things, um, unless you actually reduce those numbers, you're right. Social distancing is something that people just can't do.
2: Absolutely. And how are you doing your work, Karen, if, if you're not able to get in to see the prisoners?
1: It's very difficult. So there's a lot of uh, negotiation to try to get phone calls or video conferences. But, uh, it used to be that um, we could get video conferences by booking them with corrections uh, in a fairly straightforward way. Sometimes you could get them on the same day or usually the next day. At the moment, the video conferencing system is so blocked up because it's being used for court Um, and for all other purposes. And sometimes, you know, we can be asked to wait a week before we can get a video conference with a client. Uh, Similarly, our Friday advice sessions, um, prisoners, uh, people in prisons wanting to access our phone advice line or Victoria Legal Aid or the Ombudsman or their own private lawyer, uh, they would need to use the phone system that's in the common areas. But while they're locked down, they can't get out to do that. So we are noticing that there's a drop in the number of people uh, contacting us from prison because of so many lockdowns having occurred in the last couple of weeks.
2: So basically the the lockdowns then, are they
1: all the prisons? It has been uh, on and off for a number of prisons in the last couple of weeks, depending on uh, who they've identified. So um, the Metropolitan Remand Centre was locked down. I'm not sure if they still are because of a Roman prisoner. There was a uh, prison officer identified at Ravenhall, um, and Ravenhall was locked down, and I believe still is um, while they uh, checked all the close contacts of that prison officer. Um, I believe that that officer was also involved in prison transport, six other prisons. So those six other prisons were also locked down while they did testing of close contacts. Um, and, and people in prison who'd had contact with that officer. So um, at the moment, it's sort of, you know, a lockdown will be for a couple of days and then lifted. Uh, but, of course, as you mentioned, there's the, the systematic lockdowns of for 14 days of someone who's coming for the system, and that's going on um, constantly.
2: Thank you so much for coming onto the program, Karen. Are you just able
1: to just... Um, give out the number of the advice line again. Sure. So this is open to people in prison but also uh, to people who have have loved ones in prison. Uh, It's the Fitzroy Legal Service Prison Law Advice Line, 03 9484 4751. And it operates on Fridays from 9.30am to 4.30pm.
2: What a mess this health crisis is providing, Karen. it's, It's awful. Yeah. And you know, often when I start getting annoyed and thinking, oh yeah, I, I can't, I can't go out. I think, well, you know what? It's worse for pri- for people in prison than me. Yeah,
1: it's interesting, isn't it? This use of the word lockdown uh, yeah, in sort of general, yeah. <laughs> But um, people who are talk, talking about being locked down, I mean, it is unpleasant for people, especially ones who um, yeah. have a positive result or are a close contact and they need to isolate, you know, for at least 14 days and sometimes more. Yeah, yeah.
2: Um,
1: that, that is awful. But the rest of us, you know, we can go out for exercise, we can go out to shop um, and we've got access, a lot of us have got access to phones and videos and Zoom and all these things, but uh, a lockdown in prison in solitary is, it's not like that at all. It's actually an extremely... It, it, it is torture, actually. It's been defined as torture, uh, long-term solitary confinement.
2: And let's give a call out to the Victorian government to... And indeed, the the, gov- the federal government to release prisoners, you know, people in prison early.
1: Yeah, look, I think if I had one message, it's that solitary confinement is not the answer. Decarceration is, is the public health measure that we really need. Any final comments, Karen? So I think that's, um, that's probably the, the main thing I would say. I, uh, um, the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service and their um, CEO, Narita Waite, have been doing a lot of work around this. And I think it's probably worth mentioning that, of course, because Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's are so much more uh, disproportionately imprisoned than any other part of the Australian population, that this is having a, a particular impact on um, First Nations communities and families and people in prison. Uh, and, yeah, I think that given that we live in the time of Black Lives Matter, uh, it's important that that should be recognised and the government should also feel the pressure to make sure that um, our first, that first Nations communities are not suffering disproportionately because of this. And at the moment, um, they are. And we, we also know from um, a lot of research that solitary confinement has a particularly damaging effect on people from First Nations communities and shouldn't be used except as a very final resort.
2: Well, that's exactly right. And, and in fact... Um, there simply isn't enough, there aren't enough diversion programs or um, whether you're in prison or or out of prison, there's not enough culturally appropriate um, programs at all. Yeah, I think,
1: you know, this crisis, the COVID-19 crisis, like in a lot of areas, it's really shown up the weaknesses and problems in um, our society and one of them is the overuse of imprisonment. Uh, You know, pick a social issue um, and, you know, imprisonment is sort of offered as the the so-called solution. And we've ended up with um, thousands of people passing through prisons each year on short sentences and longer sentences, of course. Um, But, you know, prison being used for for, uh, minor drug offences, non-violent offences, all of these things which... um, you know, if, if there were better alternatives available and imprisonment was not the first resort, then we wouldn't have such a big problem, um, a big, big public health problem at the moment.
2: Absolutely, and, we, and, and we, I suppose we're running out of time, but also the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, the recommendations certainly have not been upheld where prison's are last resort. And that was even before the pandemic, but the pandemic has made it much worse now. That's right.
1: Yeah, and and yeah, especially for young people. And I, I guess I'm not sure if you're covering it today, but um, and I haven't heard what the result is. But there's a big campaign at the moment to raise the age of criminal responsibility and to prevent uh, children, you know, particularly under 14, but all children, from from being imprisoned. Um, that's a really important uh, part of what we need to do.
2: Indeed it is and I'm going to be speaking with Dr Hannah McLeod who's a Noongar woman um, next and I hope to be speaking a little bit about that with her. But next week we're going to be having Tiffany Overall from Youth Law who will be covering that topic in a lot of detail next Monday.
1: Great, I'll be listening.
2: Good on you Karen, thanks so much. Thanks. Well, you take lovely care. to meet so you. Safe. Okay, See ya, you Bye too. bye. Bye bye. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM, on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio.
0: Isolated? Quarantined? Need some essentials but can't leave the house? Or just having a hard time dealing with everything at the moment? Queer Aid Nam is a new mutual aid group of organized volunteers. We're here, we're queer, and we've got your back. Whether or not that's how you identify, nobody should be suffering because capitalism or the state didn't provide what they needed. That's why we're working to strengthen our communities through solidarity. Put in a request for help and we'll match you with a volunteer in your area who can either pick up groceries or other essentials for you, help you run errands, cook meals for you, or check in with how you're going. If you or someone you know is having a hard time, or if you want to join the volunteer list, find us on QueerAidMelbourne.org or search for us via Facebook, COVID-19 Queer Aid Nam Melbourne. So tell your family and your friends and don't forget your neighbours. That's QueerAidMelbourne.org, a 3CR supporter. The Queen Victoria Women's Centre is calling all craftivists to join us and make a fuss. Make a Fuss is a crowdsourced craftivist project looking for submissions on the theme of women's silence. If you've experienced a time when you didn't want to make a fuss, why not get crafting and make some noise? For more information, go to qvwc.org.au and click on Make a Fuss. Submissions close August 19th. Queen Victoria Women's Centre is a 3CR supporter.
2: And you're back with the Doin' Time Show. And coming up next, we've got Dr. Hannah McGlade, and we're going to be speaking about state violence. And we're going to be also speaking about some very, very, um, very confronting topics in regards to young Aboriginal people being in state care. Hello, Hannah, welcome to the program. Hello, thank you for um, having me on the program. It's so lovely to have you. I'm wondering if you could just start off by telling us what land you're on and talk about, a little bit about yourself. So I'm in Perth and um, people call Perth now, the, Noong- uh, the Noongar people, are part of the Bibbulmun Nation. We have many different um, groups within our people but we, we're all um, one people still, so yeah. No, that, that's great. So I said I was talking in my intro about how there's been a lot of young Aboriginal teenagers who've who've actually suicided in state care. Is that something that you'd want to talk about today on the show? Um, yes, I'm happy to talk about this very um, yeah troubling and um, problematic issue. Absolutely. So um, where do we start? <laughs> Where do we start? Yeah, it's it's such an old hard, story, really, about what's been happening in this country for um, you know since since the point of um, European contact with Aboriginal people, and we're we're still um, Aboriginal people experiencing this, um, systemic discrimination and structural violence, where you know the perpetrators are basically you know state um, agencies and. Uh, yeah, that's why I guess you know Black Lives Matter has been such a powerful movement and, and a truth-telling time for, for us here in this country as well. Absolutely, and I suppose I use the word confronting because a lot of people don't like to hear the word suicide, do they? No, it's um it's really sad um, issues. Um, Aboriginal families are being um, you know ripped apart by. Uh, particularly youth suicide um, it's a major issue in Australia as well, uh, but we have particularly higher rates. And I'm just looking at the story on the front page of the West Australian, I think it's, um, you know, I don't know if it's today or yesterday, but a, um, a child who had been placed in 57 different out-of-home care placements in her short 17-year life, but less than for unsafe living situations. And uh, she had um, took her life after police left her wandering the streets at nine at night, following the arrest of her much older boyfriend after he assaulted her on a Perth bus. You know, so we have um, rising child removal rates across the country, and particularly in West Australia. We're fighting um, for better law in our state at the moment, and we have a bill that um, is not um, not respecting Aboriginal families' rights to. Participate, and which will render our children more unsafe. We have that bill in the Upper House of Parliament before a Standing Committee on Legislation. But certainly the, the um, cases of children who are dying um, after finding um, years of abuse in the out-of-home care system is, um, you know, should be shining a spotlight on um, the, the severity of what is happening in terms of Aboriginal human rights that even the children are being treated in such a horrific manner. Would you say that this is about stolen generation and genocide? Yes, I think it's a form of ongoing genocide, really, and forced assimilation that's not acknowledged. And we know that when the National um, Human Rights Institution made a finding officially of genocide in the 1990s, following the Bringing Them Home inquiry, that the then government and Prime Minister John Howard repudiated um, that work, which was, um, you know, it was based in proper evidence gathering across the country and documentary evidence from the parliament and uh, states about their intentions at that time. And, of course, now no, no states admit to wanting to assimilate Aboriginal people anymore. And we have reconciliation plans everywhere, but there is still an assimilationist uh, mindset and uh, the fact that departments um, are removing Aboriginal children without properly talking to families without, and that states are properly, aren't properly investing in early intervention um, and the underlying uh, drivers of child removal. For example, the issue of violence against Indigenous women, the issue of poverty and homelessness, that these have been, you know, used as reasons to remove Aboriginal children and place them increasingly with non-Aboriginal families, and uh, you know, subject them to often, um, you know, abuse and state care. So yes, I do. I think this is, you know, assimilation is, a, is still a battle that we are facing, and that the consequences are so dire that you know, it is it is not out of reach to be talking about. Um, genocide being ongoing, as many Aboriginal people believe? Certainly not. And and I, I think what really irks me as a radio broadcaster and also as a human rights activist is when people say, some people say, oh, yes, but, you know, you've got to get over the past. Mm. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, the past and it's so present. Um, so what are they telling people to get over the present? abuse and violation of human rights and disregard for our fundamental human rights, particularly rights to Aboriginal self-determination. And if we look, say, at what's happening now with our child protection bill that we um, Aboriginal people, including the National Body for Children's Snakes, are opposing, uh, it does actually acknowledge Aboriginal self-determination in the bill, but it's like a a backhand slap then. It says you can remove... You can um, place the child make its placement decision after consultation with one Aboriginal family member and one. we're arguing yeah one one uh, you know uh, we're arguing for aboriginal family led decision making which is a, a best practice model uh, supported in legislation in Victoria and Queensland and which actually gives the family a chance to make a decision um, that will Uh, stop the removal or or keep the child in the extended family. And, um, you know, it's it's like we have to have a fight over it. So, yeah. So, Hannah, can you talk about the particulars of this bill? And let me just clarify. So this bill is supposed to help Aboriginal children in the child protection system, but it actually doesn't, Mm. right? Yes. Yes, in fact, it's... uh, you know, are going to render children more vulnerable to removal. And we actually had a 5% increase in Aboriginal child removal in West Australia during COVID. And the national body, Snake, have estimated that there'll be a tripling of Aboriginal child removal rates across Australia without drastic urgent interventions, which they set out in the Roadmap to Reform as part of the Family Matters campaign. And one of the key platforms of that campaign, campaign is you know, Aboriginal family-led decision-making and giving families uh, a right to be um, involved in the decision-making, of course. And that's being uh, resisted in WA. It, it is occurring now in Victoria and Queensland. There was a pilot in Queensland and it was shown to have no good outcome. I mean, keeping keeping kids with their, um, their families. So, you you know, if if the consultation is done properly, then it's okay. Yeah, well, you know, if the consultation um, or the actual Aboriginal family meeting happens, the family are the people that know best what the issues are. It, It doesn't mean that... It just means giving an opportunity to the family to have the meeting about significant... ..before significant decisions are taken... It's a shifting of the balance of power where currently the child protection worker has so much power. You know, And we saw in New South Wales, the recent inquiry, I think it was called the Davis Inquiry, uh, showed that actually this was a very dangerous situation and that um, in regards to removals that were happening for Aboriginal children, they, they showed that there was actually false information being presented to courts as well. And they recommended a, an independent body there to handle the uh, court aspect of child uh, protection. But, uh, yeah, so it's a shift of balance. It's not all up to the the child protection worker who, you know, in some ways is acting like, many times, like the, the good old native welfare workers that removed Aboriginal children by virtue of them being, you know, Aboriginal. Uh, there are um, allegations um, levelled against families. There are roadblocks uh, put up um, when families make... A lot of efforts to address what the concerns are, and there's an unwillingness to consider reunification when um, Aboriginal mothers, for example, have um, become very stable in their lives and and can look after their children. And the department knows that, yet they still have decided to keep some children, say, which doesn't make any sense at all. And it's just a form of, um, you know, punishment and cruelty to the Aboriginal um, parents, really. So there's, um, racism, there's growing evidence. Yeah, absolutely. There's structural racism and systemic racism and individual racism happening every day of the week in relation to a great deal of cases, I believe. And uh, there's no requirement for this system to have cultural safety or respect for Aboriginal um, you know, people and culture. And that's why bringing them home all those years ago in 1996 in their final report, that Aboriginal child protection, the jurisdiction needs to be transferred to Aboriginal people. And that that has only happened to date in Victoria in the last um, maybe two years. Uh, It's happened in some jurisdictions in Canada, but uh, I have also been informed by um, Native Canadian Indigenous Aboriginal people there that they are struggling as well with this issue of increasing Aboriginal child removals in provinces. It's become a very big um, political issue there, as it has in New Zealand, where the Māori people and elders and leaders um, have um, had their own inquiry into removal of the Māori children and called for the resignation of the minister responsible and the CEO of the um, the uh, relevant body there, Oranga the, Tamriki, um, Uh, So we're seeing, you know, this is an international Indigenous human rights issue of the highest order. Uh, We know that, um, you know, this is a a form of ongoing um, attack on, on people and families. So in some ways, even though there are bills and there's meant to be protocols, it could be construed as 1788 all over again? Yeah, well, there's a real denial, I think, to recognise, you know, that Aboriginal people have uh, rights to sovereignty and self-determination, and rights to family and rights to their own children. So that's um, clearly a, a, like a war that we are waging, a modern day war for our, you know, Aboriginal human rights, fundamental rights, and uh, we are living in clearly a settler society that is resisting. And, uh, you know, I was actually attacked in Parliament by a minister, Ben White, who himself is uh, descended from the Stolen Generation. His father was actually a a bit of a fighter for Aboriginal rights. So that's very sad. He's um, not spent time to understand what the issues are. Um, He's also the treasurer, which may um, explain why he hasn't had the time to talk properly with Aboriginal people and understand why the law and the bill the bill in its current form needs to be amended, Um, simply hasn't had the time probably to really look at these issues or speak to Aboriginal women um, about what they're actually experiencing. I've worked with um, Aboriginal um, Victim Support Family Violence Services and, you know, these services, which are Australia-wide, but particularly in West Australia, can tell you exactly what the kind of treatment Aboriginal mothers um, who are victims of violence are experiencing from the department, and it is highly abusive. But yeah, we, we are fighting a, a it is a a war and a battle, and we're not giving up at all. Absolutely. In fact, I, I interviewed Bronwyn Carlson um, about Indigenous femicide, and it's interconnected, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yes, it is absolutely interconnected, and this violence against the Aboriginal women, you know, that it's, a, it's ex- it's extended to the is linked and extended intrinsically to the violence against Aboriginal children. The mothers and the children are being, um, you know, um, assaulted together in these um, ways of, um, you know, that are do amount to structural violence. And if we look at the front page and investigation into the death of this young girl, you know, to be taken from your family put in 57 different homes where you were unsafe subject to numerous physical and sexual assaults by much older men uh, living on the streets unsurprisingly developing alcoholism and needed a liver transplant by 17 before she killed that's herself even. after the police abandoned her. Yeah. Oh, that's awful. So, oh, yes, here's the headline. Special investigation. Aboriginal teenager in state care dies from suicide after being left alone at night by WA police. Yes, and then we have the WA coroner, none of whom who have done justice to any Aboriginal um, death, um, investigating. Uh, I don't know if they have called any Aboriginal expertise to give evidence. It doesn't appear that they have and clearly should have. Uh, so it would be interesting to see what the... Uh, coroner's reports um, say, but they certainly do appear to almost normalise the horrific violence that Aboriginal people are experiencing and children um, are experiencing. That's, and they're rendered invisible, isn't it? Yes, I mean, it's interesting, like, this story will show it up, and only a week or so ago there was a young man who um, committed suicide in Care when his mental health... Um, Issues were known, and not unlike, I'm sure, the young um, Benel boy who committed suicide when his mental health needs were completely neglected in prison. You know, society keeps seeing it, and then we have, we have no changes. And, and currently I'm involved um, in supporting several um, Aboriginal families whose um, sons... Uh, in one case, uh, the young prisoner, male prisoner, has no parents. But these um, prisoners who are in their early 20s, are all being subjected to an isolation regime in um, prison, which means they are locked in a cell for 23 out of 24 hours in a day and shackled um, a lot of the time, too, when they have um, non-contact visits. And uh, this is going on for extensive periods of time, varying different periods, but we're talking about months. You know, this is um, a treatment that's been condemned by the United Nations. It's a clear violation of human rights law. We've signed the optional protocol on the Convention Against Torture. And yet we have these prisons run often by uh, English people um, who are attacking, you know, young, vulnerable Aboriginal men who have disability as well. Uh, and this is only, you know, really going to, um, you know, create... Um, you know, further disability and risk of suicide. Um, So these are the practices that um, we're seeing. I'm also hearing about um, police dogs being used on Aboriginal people more frequently now, and people being injured by dog bites as well. It's um, it's, uh, pretty horrific, and we were the first state to disband the Aboriginal Justice Committee, and the Australian Law Reform Commission said in the Pathways to Justice inquiry that was delivered two years ago... Re-establish the Aboriginal Justice Committees in the states urgently, and that's you know what we really need to be at least a starting point here, which we you know we don't have the year uh, of government way. Why in particular Western Australia? Why, why does it sound to me like not the worst state, but it's there's a lot going on in Western Australia. Yeah, so it's been pretty bad, hasn't it? Look, um. When I was growing up, there was a campaign to stop land rights in WA. The mining companies were very powerful. Apparently, you know, a lot of the most richest people in the world live in, you know, they're from, like, connected over this country, of the country. But, yeah, they were very um, powerful, um, those those interests, the mining interests, and they stopped land rights happening in West Australia back in the 80s. And uh, we were colonised, you know, um, 100-plus years after the East Coast. And I wonder if, uh, you know, our physical distance and isolation from other parts of the country um, is relevant. When I was growing up, it was kind of like WA and Queensland were really like on par. Queensland seems to have gone ahead a lot more in terms of Indigenous affairs and issues. So it's not, you know, nowhere is perfect in this country, obviously. But uh, West Australia should be absolutely ashamed of itself. And it's the Labor government too. This is the government that you know, was supposed to be committed to Aboriginal people that hasn't, um, first political party or, one I'm not sure, I don't know if the Greens have, but certainly they've found a reconciliation. You know, they've got a reconciliation plan now. Uh, yeah, it just goes out the window, you know, when it comes to the actual Absolutely. reality of how they're doing business. Yeah. And, and for you to be attacked in Parliament, I mean, when <laughs> you were trying to help, like, I, I just don't understand it. Yeah, that's right, you know, and I'm well-known. As you said, I'm well-known. I personally have personally been around and knows a lot, you know, and I certainly have been 30 years, and particularly strong on violence against women and children and human rights, and I'm, I'm at the level now of um, representing Indigenous issues in the UN Permanent Forum for Indigenous Issues. Uh, but, uh, yes, um, I, I, maybe I'll take it as a compliment um, that yeah. I, you know, they know that I'm going to speak up very clearly Me, about being human rights issues. <laughs> yeah, effective, maybe, Um but yeah, there's a lack of respect for Aboriginal women, um, you know, too often. And uh, Ben White is showing himself to be completely out of touch. We've had a lot of desecration of Aboriginal sites, the horrific um, Rio Tinto um, des- destruction of the and George site, uh, and then it was subsequently, you know, revealed that in fact BHP were also planning, you know, that they were doing this for their operations, and that Minister had given hadn't, um, you know, overridden the approvals. Um, this has been so long-standing um, since, as a, um, you know, my, as a young law student, we would protest to protect sacred sites and Aboriginal recommendations for protection of those sites were constantly being overridden by the minister. So nothing has um, changed except now, you know, people are, are shocked across the world, How, you know, heritage, ancient heritage sites being treated in such a... Um, disgraceful way for me, you know, the corporate interest and the, and the dollar. Yeah. But, um, so that that's all interrelated because of the fact that the the government wants the land, and mm. that's why Aboriginal women aren't respected as well. That's yeah, it's, that's right. It's all connected. This attack on the the land and Aboriginal the Nungar word for land is Budja and. Uh, the word for the woman when she's carrying the baby is Budjari from up um, from country too. So, you know, the woman and the and the land and, the, and we are part of our land and this is um, absolutely interconnected to the you know non-indigenous um, capitalist and and uh, you know mentality that of extraction. Right? And we are itself. Some people saying as Aboriginal people, here, things, some kind of extractive industry now, you know, and that's if you think of how much it costs you know, Australia to uh con- continue to, you know, impose this kind of this um mass incarceration, this you know, um genocidal child removal, um this is um phenomenal uh costing but it's an industry, you know? It's sort of non indigenous. Um and uh it's, it's apparently so um necessary Clearly, because at the end of the day, this is yeah, it is a fight over our our land and our just our right to be free people. And, and the land is our mother, really. Mm, that's right. Yeah. Hat. No, yeah. it's bad. yeah. I, I grew up so with um, my country. With I was going to, to say tell my country where them. I grew up from had had rivers. The land is our mother, but you know, like they're destroying our land. Where I grew up, the rivers were, you know, half dry, and and the fish are, you know, the fishing sources are being depleted um, because they're taking everything. <laughs> yeah, so it's absolutely our, our land is hurting. Yeah, yeah. good but to talk to you. We have to keep going, Hannah. Yeah, we are. We'll keep going. We'll, um, we don't give up. Yeah, Hannah, right, it's so wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, We've got a couple of minutes left, but I wanted to uh, to to have you come on and, and talk about exactly these things. So thank you yes, very much. And I'm only sorry no I wasn't able to, to meet you at um, the Death escape Symposium um, oh, last year. No, but. I'm sorry too. But look, um, we have got this bill that we want to change. So keep yes. keep an eye, and we are also challenging, going to challenge, um, this. this horrific treatment of the prisoners in isolation and solitary confinement. That's so fantastic advice to watch, and the, space. We'll watch the space. Yeah. yeah. Okay. We'll well, be right. you back. Then. Take care. See you. Thanks bye. a lot. Bye bye. You're listening to Three C R Community
0: Radio at 55 AM on digital and online. Three C R Radical Radio. Hey all you mob, it's Dr. Mark Winnetong here. Coronavirus has certainly changed the way we live, work and connect. These changes can be hard for some of us and can make us feel no good in our head or spirit, like sad or worried all the time. Some of us might already be dealing with other things like sickness, trauma, and this can make it really hard for us to feel good about anything at the moment. If you're feeling like this, remember, it's OK to ask for help. Have a yarn to someone you trust, like your family or an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health worker. You can also call Beyond Blue, Lifeline or the Kids Helpline to talk to someone or look at some helpful information at headtohealth.gov.au on the internet. A 3CR supporter.
2: And you're back with the Doin Time show. And it's approximately... Oh, wow. It's approximately 4.57 and I'm out of here. Beyond Zero is coming up next. Thank you so much to Karen Fletcher and also to Dr. Hannah McGlade um, for coming on to the show. And stay tuned every Monday from 4 to 5 for the Doin' Time show. And Beyond Zero is up next. Bye. Take care of each other.
1: True fellow, as long as you are real fellow, all the people of this.